0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we continue our conversation on the progressive era with a discussion about the FDA. You know the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. They make sure the food you eat is safe. They make sure the medications you take are going to work and not cause harm. We even have a guest from the FDA who we will talk to later. But before we turn it over to jean I get to talk about my friends at SweatSedo.com. If you are looking for the hottest tracksuit or a customizable tracksuit, go to SweatSedo.com, tell them Jimmy sent you, and that I gave you a 10% off promo code HISTORY10, lowercase history and the number 10. So if you want to move at the speed of leisure, you go get yourself a SweatSedo. And now, without further ado, we are going to turn this over to our resident history expert, Gene Anzanakis. Gene, take it away.
1: All right. So moving along into the progressive era, you know, it would not be a full discussion unless we talked about the FDA. And a little later on into the podcast, we're going to be joined by a member of the Office of the Historian for the FDA, Miss Vanessa Burroughs. But before we get there, I want to talk about what led up to the creation of the FDA. And we can't do that without talking about one particular muckraker of sorts a man by the name of upton sinclair upton sinclair was a writer and a socialist he spent a number of weeks undercover at a chicago meatpacking plant and his book the jungle was meant to you know shed light on the terrible working conditions and instead people focused on the ways in which their meat was being produced The Meat Inspection Act was passed in response to Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. It prohibited the sale of adulterated or misbranded livestock and derived products as food and ensured that, you know, livestock, when they were slaughtered and processed, were done so under sanitary conditions. And the USDA was given the right to inspect all livestock before and after slaughter. The FDA has its roots in the former Department of Chemistry within the Department of Agriculture. What once started out as really an army of one, one lone chemist has evolved and grown into an agency with thousands of employees and is now under the Department of Health and Human Services. As early as the 1840s, chemical analysis was used to monitor the safety of agricultural products, and it took a number of attempts to get this law passed. Similar laws had been introduced years earlier, but they were not passed. In fact, over a span of 25 years, there were 100 different bills introduced in Congress on the subject. The Pure Food and Drug Act is also known as the Wiley Act, and it was named after chemist Harvey Washington Wiley, who studied the effects of adulterated foods and fertilizers. For years, he advocated for the passage of such a law. Muckrakers, who wrote of the horrors of the meat industry like Upton Sinclair, whose book, The Jungle, was written to expose the horrible working conditions of the workers and not the food that was being produced. Sinclair was a socialist and he considered his work to be a failure because it didn't have the impact that he hoped it would. The American public was horrified by what they learned in his book. The law finally had the support needed to get passed. Under the law, drug labels, for example, had to list any of 10 ingredients that were deemed addictive and dangerous or the product label if they were present and they could not list them if they were not present, you know, items such as alcohol, morphine, opium, cannabis, they were all included on the list of these addictive and or dangerous drug. So what the Pure Food and Drug Act did was that, yes, it prohibited the sale of misbranded or adulterated food and drugs in interstate commerce, but it also laid a foundation for the nation's first consumer protection agency, which, of course, has become the Food and Drug Administration. And you might hear it referred to as the FDA. The FDA is the oldest consumer protection agency within the federal government. And today, as I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, we are joined by Vanessa Burroughs, who is a historian for the FDA. One of the first things I would love to discuss with you, Vanessa, is the creation of the FDA and how this agency has changed over time.
2: The FDA actually grew out of a uh, smaller office in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Mm -hmm of Agriculture was, was created in the midst of the Civil War, and it was given uh, responsibilities for agricultural research. That was; These were carried out by a, a division of chemistry that was later renamed the Bureau of Chemistry. And in the 1880s, the chief chemist, a man named Harvey Washington Wiley, started leading some research that ultimately got him more and more involved in investigating the adulteration of foods. And this grew into a a much larger social and political movement called the Pure Food Movement that was really a driving force for the passage of um, federal food and drug legislation in 1906 called the Pure Food and Drugs Act. So the agency really grew out of this sort of research arm of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and social movement that led to this legislation. It wasn't named the FDA until 1930, but certainly it it had been in existence. What we would have recognized as the FDA or the role that the FDA played had been in existence for quite a while, not to give you a, an around the bend sort of answer on that. So with the passage of the Pure Food and Drugs Act is really where we mark the birth of the organism, of you know the modern day FDA. And the reason that this is the sort of conceptual moment is because it is the first time in U.S. history that there was at the federal level regulation of foods and drugs. It banned the adulteration or misbranding of drugs. So adulteration is um, altering the composition of a product so that it is not what it, it purports to be. And misbranding is misrepresenting on a label what a product is. To that end, a product could not be false or misleading in any respect. And it could not, uh, if, if, the, if it was a drug, it had to adhere to professionally set standards for purity, strength, or identity. And it, if they contained one of 11 dangerous or habit-forming substances, so like cocaine or morphine or alcohol, those had to be listed on the label. Apart from that, the only other affirmative labeling requirement for drugs was that they had to identify the compendial name, so um, whatever the professional definition of that chemical was. And for foods, they did it did not require any affirmative labeling. That came much later in terms of what ingredients or the actual name of the product.
1: I don't no, think a lot ahead. of people realize just how bad things were before the FDA came about you know, even things that something as wholesome as milk, for example, it could have chalk put into it to make it look creamier or or whiter. And the FDA made foods especially a lot safer for people to eat.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you look at the state of the marketplace for food in the, the turn of the 20th century, it's really revolting. And it's sort of famously revolting, thanks to the work of muckraking journalists that exposed what was going into our foods. But there were it was the The late 19th century was the first time in U.S. history that you had sort of nationally integrated marketplace where foods were moving over really large distances. So consumers would never meet, you know, the original producers of their food. And the fact that there were these long transportation routes meant you had to introduce, you had to find some way of preserving the foods, be it through refrigeration or through chemical preservatives. And because we didn't have prior to 1906, any federal regulations requiring that consumers be notified about um, what was in these products, it meant that you could be consuming alum in your flour or, um, or arsenic in your candy and any number of formaldehyde in your meat at every meal, having some chemicals um, introduced into your body and the cumulative, cumulative exposure could have really dangerous consequences.
1: Can you also talk about you know, the history of the process of approving a drug or the process of approving drugs today?
2: When the Pure Food and Drugs Act was passed, there was no safety requirements um, for drugs. So the FDA did not have the authority to evaluate any drug products for safety before they entered the market. That came about as a result of the public health tragedy in the fall of 1937 when a Sulfa drug, which was an anti-infective before we had modern-day antibiotics, was introduced to the marketplace, and sadly, it had a lethal uh, solvent, diethylene glycol, and it killed over 100 people. And it created this call to arms that we really needed some guarantees that, at, at the very least, the products we were using for therapies were safe enough to use. That is really the beginning of the modern drug approval process, and From 1938 forward with the passage of the uh, Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, there was a requirement that firms had to submit data to the FDA proving that their products were safe before they could be marketed. This changed significantly in 1962 with the passage of the 1962 drug amendments, which added an additional requirement that drugs also had to prove efficacy. So if you claimed to alleviate a headache, you had to demonstrate through clinical data that your product actually did alleviate headaches. And you know, interestingly, this also created a mandate that FDA go back and evaluate all of the products that had been approved on the basis of safety alone. Since 1938, they had to look at efficacy data for those products too. This is called the Drug Efficacy Study. 62 was a watershed year in not just by adding the efficacy requirement but it also gave FDA greater authority in the realm of de- of clinical trial design to determine what is substantial evidence who is a qualified expert to conduct the trial and just to create much higher standards of clinical trial conduct i mean from 62 forward if you did any research on clinical subjects, you had to get informed consent. It's it is the birth of the modern drug review process. And I mean, it has changed in countless ways since then um, and become much more sophisticated in keeping pace with advances in industry um, and in the market. And the process now is quite different than it was in the 60s. I mean, it's still meets the same end to make sure that our drugs are safe and effective. But it also, it's inherently collaborative. It's an extremely collaborative process, drawing on the expertise of a range of different people of scientific and medical backgrounds that evaluate the products submitted for review extremely thoroughly, speak with each other, meet with the sponsor on a prescribed timeline. Um, that's given by law and work with social scientists and with project managers and with a whole range of other kinds of experts on how to determine what needs to be communicated on a product label and how we can mitigate known risks. So the thing that I would say that's most conspicuous about how the drug approval process has changed over time is that it is moving towards always keeping up with the data, making sure that it is marshaled to keep consumers as safe as possible, to improve their ability to understand how to use drugs. So by, so to that end, giving them effective information, be it on a product label, a package insert. These days, the internet is also an extension of the label to some extent. It's a, a historical construct <laughs> um, in and of itself.
1: Without a doubt. You know, there are a lot of misconceptions about what the FDA does and what their overall goal is. What would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the FDA? So
2: I think that, you know, the fact that the FDA does suffer from misconception is because it is such a complex agency and because we regulate products that are so vital to people's lives. I mean, we regulate over 20% of consumer products, things from Band-Aids to heart valves and Things that people rely on in their daily lives and in like tragic moments of their lives, right? Mm -hmm. So it touches our lives really deeply and therefore it stirs up strong emotions and sometimes strong criticism. But that's not inherently bad. Being able to listen to your critics, I think, is actually something that the agency does really well. We do it through a, a variety of ways. I mean, especially through open public comment, through public meetings. We're, I think the agency is actually quite receptive to criticism. And I mean, I could give you historical examples of how, we, how this has actually benefited the agency. In the 1980s, during the HIV AIDS crisis, you had a really, really powerful activist organization that helped push the agency to develop Accelerated Approval Pathways to make sure that patients that were suffering from, a, at that time, lethal disease got access to promising therapies in a, in a more expeditious manner. It also, as, as a result of that, FDA started putting patient advocates on every single advisory committee to make sure that patients have a voice in the policy process. So, I, you know, criticism has a use to, to a certain extent. In terms of how I, what misconceptions I think are worthy to dispel, I think I, I study the history of the FDA, so I'm constantly looking at how the agency changes over time. And that's one thing up front, is that it's not a static, monolithic arm of government. It is a, a changing organization that is made up of human beings and that is Uh, exists by law. The people that work at the FDA carry out a mission that is given to it through legislation. I mean, I'll give you another historical example. In the 1930s, there was a lot of concern about dangerous cosmetics and dangerous medical devices that were on the market, and why didn't the FDA do anything about them? And the FDA didn't have the regulatory authority under the law to do anything about devices or cosmetics at the time. But that sort of level of criticism pushed towards a change in the law that gave FDA the authority to keep consumers safe from dangerous cosmetics and devices. So I think that's understanding that the FDA exercises legal authorities is a really important component. It's not an easy thing to understand because the law is constantly changing and sometimes it's quite dense and complex. But the FDA cannot do something that it is not authorized to do. The last thing I would say is FDA has to follow the science, Uh, and science changes. Science is um, historically constructed as well. So if And and FDA is, you know, quite good at this. We have some of the, just an extraordinary range of expertise within the agency. And we're so good at drawing on expertise from without the agency through our advisory committees and so forth when when needed. But science changes with every second, it, it seems, and that's for the better. But keeping up with science means that FDA's policy has to, it has to change over time as science warrants it. So, Sometimes that seems, I think, externally like there's fluctuating policies, but the truth is it's the agency being very vigilant about keeping pace with current scientific knowledge.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's true. You know, as science changes, as more information is known or as new things are uncovered, it's important for the FDA to be able to adapt I don't think people understand how long and how much it took to get the 1906 law passed, the 1938 law passed, you know, it took 25 years and 100 different attempts to pass the first 1906 law. And they saw through loopholes, false advertising, that they needed to amend the law, then he had to change it to be able to allow the FDA, as you said earlier, to do more, it lacked certain regulatory rights. And one of the things that the FDA did to kind of get the American public on board was they created this exhibit, the Consumer Protection Exhibit, but it became known as the American Chamber of Horrors. Can you talk a little
2: bit about that? Sure. Um, You know, that was actually the American Chamber of Horrors actually developed out of a tradition that the agency had for developing exhibits that goes back to having to present evidence in court which are called exhibits, right? So in order to move against a product that in violation of the law, the agency would have to present the product, right? You have to have a body of evidence. So we collected violative products. And when there started to be, actually some of the limitations of the 1906 Act were apparent even By the First World War, and especially over the course of the 20s as the cosmetic industry became less taboo and much more popular with Hollywood and glamour magazines and so forth, there were really significant limitations. So when the agency noticed products that it couldn't move against, it started collecting them as well for evidence it could bring to Congress to to make uh, exhibits before lawmakers about um, the limitations faced. So it was our legal strategy as an agency to have a body of evidence to present. But the genius part of the Chamber of Horrors came um, from the FDA's first chief information officer, who was a woman named Ruth DeForest Lamb, who also was just a really fantastic storyteller. So she was able to say, well, we have these violative products, but what do they mean in a way that really resonated with people? And the first concept for the uh, Chamber of Horrors was to bring these products down to downtown Washington so that legislators could take a tour of this informational exhibit that explained the limitations of the FDA's authority. And it was installed in the Department of Agriculture building. It was right by the U.S. Capitol and within walking distance. And then later it it toured. It went to the Chicago World's Fair in the summer of 1933. And then it was installed at a number of different state health fairs. And as you mentioned, the uh, press, I guess, was duly impressed by how horrific some of the artifacts were and how, how they were impacting people. I mean, one of the things that caught a lot of attention was a cosmetic that was used to tint eyebrows and eyelashes called lure. And at the time there was no regulations for cosmetics. So you didn't have to test them for safety. You didn't have to say what the ingredients were. And it was toxic dye that people were putting right next to their eyeballs. And countless women lost their eyelashes and eyebrows as a result. Some women went blind. The Journal of American of the American Medical Association actually uh, reported that one woman may have died as a result. And uh, one of the women who was blinded testified um, before Congress about the harms um, she suffered. And that's just one of the dozens of products that were in this exhibit. There were foods. There's a lot of problems with the regulation of foods in the 1930s, particularly because the Great Depression had led to, had created an incentive for economic adulteration of foods. So one of the products I find particularly revolting was a jarred chicken dinner where white meat chicken was placed around the outside of the container and this sort of just gelatinous stuff was in the middle. There were like egg noodles, product that was marketed as egg noodles, but was actually just regular macaroni in a yellow cellophane. And there were significant problems with variation in the quality of a food in terms of like for jellies, there are some products that had no actual fruit in them that were marketed as an economic, like for the wise housewife, she would choose this product. Actually, some of them even got the uh, good housekeeping seal of approval. But on the other end, you had manufacturers that were creating high quality jams that could not compete with these lower priced alternatives. So there was, you know, a a great range of products in the display. And I think it had a really significant effect to awaken people to the limitations that the FDA had in its regulatory authorities. But it still took five years to pass the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. And this was in the midst of the New Deal which was one of the most active reform movements of the 20th century. And it, it took a lot of dedication, a lot of compromise. A real champion uh, sponsor in the Senate, Royal Copeland, a senator from New York, who was himself a doctor and the former president of the New York Board of Health. And ultimately, sadly, as I mentioned before, it took a public health crisis with the deaths of over 100 people because of an unsafe drug that really catalyzed passage in
1: 1938. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time and all this incredible information that you've provided us and our listeners with. I can't thank you enough for it.
2: It's my pleasure. I'm glad that you're um, shining a spotlight on this history, and i'm I hope that people really get a lot out of your podcasts. Thank you, Jean Ann. Thank you so much.
1: All right. so you know, there you have it. You know, I one of the things that really struck me by what she said and you know, what I knew is how long it took to get a new law passed when you have this evidence that, you know, you still have dangerous products. You know, I, I, it's hard to fathom something like that taking such a long time today.
0: Yeah, well, hold that thought. I want to go back to when she was talking about expediting approval when necessary. And we just kind of hit a period where things were approved in a, in a very quick manner, as far as the COVID vaccines went, mm-hmm. but they were also the most widely tested vaccines ever to be approved. It wasn't like they just said, all right all right, we got something. We're going to, we're going to approve it. They've had, they had a lot of case studies and everything else and, and, uh, and testing that went and they did move through that pretty quickly. I think the one that is hundred percent approved, don't quote me on this. Hold on. Let me look it up it's Pfizer. It's Pfizer, right? In Pfizer, August yeah. of 21, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was right. So, Pfizer is the only one that is 100% approved right now. I feel good. I got my my Pfizer booster, but my first one was the Johnson and Johnson shot. So, there's and I that. I do
1: want to just mention when I reached out to the office of the historian, I I did give them like my wish list of questions. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of or maybe two of the questions I wanted to you know, hope to ask was about, you know, the COVID vaccination process, but, you know, the office of the historian doesn't deal with that. So I don't yeah, want our not, listeners they're to not, think they're you not know, the we do not want to discuss it. You know, it, it's just not what that office handles. They, t- you know, they deal with the history of the FDA and this is very much the present.
0: Yeah. We can talk to them about the, uh, the COVID approvals in five years <laughs> <No>. <laughs> when, when they, when they go it, down, that is history.
1: But if you think about it, it, it was an extensive approval process. And, and mm. in the past, One of the things that I found interesting in reading up on the FDA is Christmas is the season for sedatives and hypnotics. And at one time you had these, you know, medical, these pharma companies who were trying to push those types of medications out prior to the start of the Christmas season, because they knew sales of those items were going to go up. But then you have the FDA saying like, hold on, we need to make sure this is safe.
0: Hey, why do you think people needed sedatives and hypnotics around the Christmas season? Was it for the shopping and the, the anxiety of having to get?
1: Uh... I don't know. Maybe it had to do with, you know, who they had to see and how long they had to see them for. Who knows?
0: Because I think my wife can use a sedative during the holidays. When season. she gets
1: around yeah. us. I don't know. Yeah. We're a loud bunch. But, you know, the FDA, it has a very interesting history. And I don't think a lot of people real, I mean, it's certainly not without its faults. You know, every agency, just like every person has their faults, but the FDA is a watchdog agency. And even if you consider what has happened recently with the FDA, you know, you're constantly seeing warnings from the FDA about products and when an issue arises they'll warn the public to check products, see if you have them in your house and not to use them. You know, just recently in February of 2022, they issued a warning about, you know, certain baby formulas, you know, the powdered formulas. And it and it was a problem for people because they had to check, they had to make sure that the formula that they were giving their babies wasn't harmful.
0: I don't disagree with that. All right, so let's get in let's get into the chamber of horrors. So I was I was a little surprised with the eyebrow dye. It was telling that the chicken and the jelly, the chicken and the gelatinous, um, yeah. would you, say the the jams, gelatinous you know,
1: one of the things that she mentioned it briefly, and we'll talk about this more when we get into the great depression, but there was this need for inexpensive foods and, and, you know, people cut back on ingredients or, you know, there weren't ingredients in there that should have been in there. Like she mentioned with the jam, you know, so it's, it's very telling, you know, you have to be a, wise consumer. And I think people need to take an interest in the foods that they purchase, how those foods are made, how they're produced and choose wisely.
0: I think that still is kind of the deal today. If something is that much less expensive, then the quality is not going to be as good. And that goes with today's foods as well. Fast foods are are cheap, they're fast. And, you know, it's, it's funny, I, I usually use this analogy with with my clients when I'm when I'm going over pricing for, you know, whether it's web design or some of the work that we have to do. And I said, you know, there are three things you can have it great, you can have it cheap and you can have it fast, but you only get to pick two out of three. Mm. So it'll if it's fast and cheap, it won't be great. If it's great and fast, it won't be cheap. Right. So you kind of get the uh, the, and then the same thing applies to to the stuff that people were buying back in the day. If it was if it was really inexpensive, it probably wasn't the greatest for you.
1: You know, even if you think about certain medications that you will see advertised today, let's say you I don't know, I'm making it up because I don't want anybody to if there's something that exists like this, it's merely a coincidence. But let's say you have insomnia. Right. And you take this medication, but now you've got loose stool, blurred vision.
0: Hot dog fingers.
1: Hot dog fingers is the cure worse than the illness? You don't have insomnia. You're sleeping, but now you can't get off the toilet. So it's it's hard to decide which is which is worse.
0: This is true. And, and you know what? You know what else I found to be quite disturbing and listening to to her talk about you know some of these foods was the ones that she mentioned that had the good housekeeping seal of approval. Yes. So from a marketing standpoint i understand getting that third party story or that third party i don't want to call it a sponsorship because or approval or or what have you to or almost like an authority you know good housekeeping was an authority in in homes and and uh, homemakers and and people that were doing the shopping oh good housekeeping said it was okay so therefore it must be okay and that was probably something that was perhaps paid for by the manufacturer of said goods hey, throw us the good housekeeping seal of approval and, you know, we'll buy ads in your magazine. And I think a lot of stuff kind of happens that way. And it still does in marketing, but, you know, you have to be more wary when it's not food or, or medication, right? But that applies to all goods, really. And you have consumer yeah. advocate. We have, I mean, we could probably do another podcast on, on uh, consumer affairs, whether it's manufactured goods or what have you.
1: Yeah, but and I think also people need to take a closer look at what companies are donating to political campaigns. You know, lobbying is a big deal. and you Don't know, get
0: me started on this.
1: How much <laughs> money a corporation donates makes a difference because, you know, they kind of hold the purse strings then. And so then you have elected officials who will either support a particular bill for whatever reason or we'll try to have a certain bill die in committee for whatever particular reason. So you listen, to I agree. I agree a
0: hundred percent, a hundred percent. I will, I would also say that I am a big advocate for term limits for the, the house and the Senate. However, you need to have lobby reform before you do that. Otherwise the lobbyists will be running the country and you can't have that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent on that. Yeah, but,
0: that's a tangent. I know, know.
1: I hope that, you know, our listeners can take that, you know, the history of the FDA that we discussed today, you know, it's absolutely a glimpse of the history of the FDA and, and follow where it's going and keep in mind, it's not a perfect agency, but without it, the FDA did not exist. Think about the potential harmful products that, or even more potential harmful products that could be on our shelves, right? Correct. It could be in our homes and and giving to our children. And, and it's very scary stuff.
0: All right. Well, this is a good place to stop on this episode for the Progressive Era. Where are we going with the next one, jean Ann?
1: The next episode, I think we'll talk about the first two Progressive Era amendments, the 16th and 17th Amendment, which is, of course, the graduated income tax and direct election of U.S. senators.
0: Oh, OK. So that sounds like a plan. And um, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.